Season's greetings, everyone, and welcome back to another edition of the Celtics Lab podcast. I am your temporary host, Alex Goldberg. Uh, Dr. Cam is out, uh, you know, he's doing holiday stuff, he's hanging out. But uh, Dr. Quinn is with me, as always. Justin, how are you doing? Not too shabby, a little tired, a little sick, like most of us getting ready for the holidays, but there's lots of basketball to talk about, which uh, is not depressing basketball to talk about, which I was a little worried about after the Golden State loss. Yes, of course, uh, Steph Curry tried to put a lump of coal in the Celtics stockings this season, but it seems that they got back in the Christmas spirit and they're doing just fine. We're going to talk about all of it in just a minute. Um, The Celtics coming off a pair of big wins. Uh, their connection to a new NBC sitcom. And of course, we are going to break down the Celtics Christmas Day game against the Los Angeles Lakers. Uh, But first, this episode of the Celtics Lab podcast is brought to you by FanDuel, the exclusive wagering partner of the CLNS Media Network. JQ, shall we jump right into it? We got some news to cover. Yeah, I'm not going to be as useful for the Sacramento uh, blowout. We have a pair of blowouts, uh, one of which I missed because I was sick as a dog, as the people who watched the last podcast probably started to notice uh, was coming on. A little bit better now. Uh, Cam, thank you for covering that. But the game was evidently pretty sick as well in a much more positive sense. Yes, it was. You were not the only one missing that game. Of course, Jason Tatum was out for that one with an ankle injury, but it did not seem to matter in what was, I would say, a pretty light on defense affair. I think that's the big conclusion that we can take away from that game is that neither team was particularly interested in getting a tremendous amount of stops. The Celtics obviously won the game in blowout fashion. Derek White was interested in getting stops, particularly getting three blocks. Um, He was terrific. He also had 28 points along with Jalen Brown, who had 28 points, and Celtics ultimately blew out the Kings 144 to 119. But this, you know, it's interesting. I was watching some of this game. uh, The Boston Music Awards were that night, so I had to play a lot of catch-up. But uh, in watching the highlights, a couple of things stood out to me. The first being that uh, obviously no defense was played at all by these teams, particularly the Sacramento Kings. The Kings are really fun. They have a super electric charged up offense, but man, they cannot get any kind of qualitative stops. And they seem like a team that should be pretty aggressive at the deadline in pursuing some wing stoppers. I don't know if you have any thoughts on the Kings broadly that you want to share before we get into the rest of this game. No, not really on the Kings. I do want to talk a little bit about a narrative that has popped up in the absence of Jason Tatum. Uh, The team tends to play faster. He doesn't really like to play very fast. He likes to walk the ball up, play more of an ISO-friendly game, which is not the way the Celtics play the best. I'm not saying, no one is saying that they're better without Tatum, but I'm curious about your thoughts on whether... Mr. Jason should be, uh, you know, moving up the court a little faster. I mean, I think I'm always in favor of the Celtics playing faster in general. I feel like at their best, they are a team that really kind of blows the doors off of everybody with their open court speed. Um, I do think there are going to be some matchups that they encounter in the playoffs where that's logistically not going to be as easy um, as it would be against a Sacramento Kings team that, again, has literally nobody capable of stopping them in the open court uh with apologies to your Davion Mitchells Keegan Murray's of the world 
Um, I think, you know, against Miami, they're going to need to be able to play a half-court game. Against the Bucs, they're going to need to be able to play some half-court basketball. If they make it to the finals and they run into the Wolves or the Nuggets, they're going to need to be able to play in the half-court. So ultimately, championship-level teams need to be able to do both. Um, but I'm definitely more towards the school of the Celtics should play faster uh, whenever possible. Just one thing I wanted to touch on, uh, you know, again, with the Sacramento Kings game, you really do see the impact of Kristaps Porzingis in this game. You know, every time that he was on the floor, the Kings really didn't have an answer in terms of his spacing, his shooting, and his size. Um, he really kind of overwhelmed their front court, and it just kind of didn't matter who they threw at him. Now, um, the thing, again, that I really want to emphasize with Porzingis is that more than anything, he strikes me as an additive scorer. He's a guy who, in hunting for his own shot and in hunting for his own offense, just by virtue of the gravity that he attracts, really um, shifts the, the kind of landscape of the court. And he opens things up despite, you know, I think he's a fine passer, but I don't think anybody would say that he's like a point center in the mold of a Jokic or something like that. He's not by any means an elite passer, but just by virtue of being a scoring threat, he opens things up for the rest of the team. And I think you really saw that in this Kings game where, you know, now with Porzingis on the floor, like JaVale McGee can't just hang back in the paint and try and block shots. Sabonis has to actually like move around. You can't just keep him in a low drop and expect that to work. And then Guys like Drew Holiday, guys like Derek White, guys like uh, Jalen Brown can really get going in the open court. So it seems like it's been another kind of seamless fit in the Brad Stevens era. Um, you know, I don't think there's too much to take away from this game. Again, the Kings are an abysmal defensive team. But um, as far as games go, you know, obviously coming off of the back of a, a fairly disappointing loss in Golden State, um, it's good for the Celtics to kind of get back to their identity with this game. And it felt like that's very much what they were doing. Um, let's shift gears and talk about the next game, uh, which, yeah. Real quick, ahead. before we go, um, I wanted to get your opinion. I heard this, um, I forget who it was who, who brought this up, but they seem to think it was a thing. And I have not heard any reporting that this is a thing. But the fact that Porzingis set out uh, the next game, which we could talk about a little bit as well, do you think the, the the folks on the the NBA show over there are correct that the Celtics are now alternating Horford and Porzingis? Um, or is that just a guess? I would I would gather that it's not so much that they're intentionally alternate uh, alternating them as it is that in this particular stretch of the season, I think they're trying to be particularly cautious with Porzingis and his calf. Um, obviously he's coming off of a calf strain. Um, those are injuries with calf strains where the big problem with calf strains is overuse. If you work that muscle too hard, um, then it will start to kind of tighten up. And so that requires some pretty kind of thoughtful daily management. So I think you're seeing this alternation strategy in part because of that and in part because Al Horford doesn't play back-to-backs and that Kings game was, uh, I believe, a back-to-back. -back. Um, so I think with that strategy, I think that's more a byproduct of just like the Celtics kind of general injury and uh, in Horford's case, age management practices. 
um, I expect that once Porzingis has had a little bit more time to kind of rest that calf muscle a little bit, um, you should start to see him more regularly in the starting lineup. But I mean, this is why you have Al Horford coming off the bench is such a luxury. Like the fact that you can seamlessly alter between two starting quality centers is pretty, pretty massive for this team. And being able to have the luxury of that is, I think, a real win uh, for, you know, a team that I think the big concern around them was front court depth. So far, if anything, their front court depth has been a strength. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in this Clippers game, because I think there were some contributors to that that are starting to bolster what I think a lot of people assumed would be kind of a thin front court. So far, it's been really strong. I was one of those people too, and I definitely want to touch on that. But before we get too far away from a comment that you made in passing that I think is actually worth revisiting, uh, why were you at the British British Music Awards, the Boston Music Awards? I was at the Boston Music Awards because uh, my band, who you heard at the top of the podcast, playing our single two by two from a couple albums ago, Divine Sweater, was nominated in four categories at the Boston Music Awards. Uh, we came away with some hardware for best indie alternative band of the year, which uh, very fun. And uh, it was just a really fun show. It was a good time. Uh, We got to see actually some friends of the pod and uh, that's going to be a little hint, which we will be coming back to hopefully in a couple episodes. Uh, Got to see some friends of the pod at the BMAs. Um, Great Boston performers, you know, want to shout out like Neems, Clark D, May Speaks, all terrific. Just really, really awesome uh, night. Uh, folks, the Boston music scene is very much alive and well. There is a lot of good stuff going on there. And if you haven't heard of any of the artists I just rattled off, make sure to check them out because there's some really good stuff going on. Cape uh, Crush, you know, Mako, Shallow Pools, all all excellent. And um, yeah, it was just a really fun night. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that, I think, in a, in a future episode. Cool. Um, so let's move on to this Clippers game, uh, which happened last night. Jason Tatum was back for that one in a big way. Obviously, Kristaps Porzingis was out, as we mentioned before. Um, long story short, Celtics blow out the Clippers on the road. No Kawhi Leonard uh, with a hip injury. Um, he was out. Um, and for the Celtics, this game was over, I think, midway through the second quarter, pretty much. Uh, I'm curious to hear your take on it first, but uh, and then we'll kind of jump into the minutia. But what did you see out of this game? I saw a Clippers team that is a lot better than I think people ever thought that that collection of players would be able to be on the court. And interestingly, one of them was not on the court. So that might be part of why they were so good, at least early. But then you can also counter that the recent success was not sustainable against Boston. They fell apart after the first quarter, uh, really never got back into it at that point. By by halftime, the game was basically over. Uh, I mean, garbage time pushed it to, I think, a 39-point lead at one point uh, in the fourth quarter. And it was, in my opinion, one of the more complete games we have seen uh, from the entire Celtics roster. We got some really good bench contributions from guys uh, that we were hopeful would be able to contribute at least a little bit. Consistency is going to be the thing moving forward with with both of those bench players, that being uh, O'Shea Brissett and Nimish Keta. 
Both of them, I think, have the potential to play really big uh, reserve roles. Let me be clear, not roles in general, but as reserve players with this team, with their skill sets. Uh, both of them, front court players who can fill in uh, for roles that, you know, some of the players we've been mentioning, who for reasons because of, you know, their age or their health uh, history, really don't want to be necessarily relying on them, particularly in the regular season, when there's any reason whatsoever to give them a rest. And honestly, it was a, it was a pretty balanced game. I mean, even Tatum, who has not been playing so great, uh, really played within the role expected of him, did not uh, try to shoot us out of the game a la Marcus Smart in the past. And as a whole, I think it was, you know, according to Joe Mazzola, it was not a statement game, but it was a statement game, in my opinion. You're muted. It's tough to make a true statement game without Kawhi Leonard, obviously. You know, I think he's been by far the Clippers' best player this year and is a huge part of their recent success. But that being said, you know, James Harden, I know he's had kind of a down year relative to MVP James Harden, but he's still a pretty good player. Paul George, still a really good basketball player. Russell Westbrook has been coming off the bench and has been playing really well for the Clippers. So it's not like they beat a bunch of nobodies here. Now, the rest of the Clippers bench very much struggled in this game. Uh, Terrence Mann with a notable zero points on 0 of 10 shooting. You're not going to win a lot of games like that. Um, you know, Daniel Tice had 15 points, but one rebound. Uh, you know, and again, the game was pretty much over by the second quarter. So a lot of those bench struggles is, I think, just kind of getting shots up and hoping something will go down. But it was a pretty complete game from Boston. Uh, you know, headliner is Jason Tatum, who got 30 points, four rebounds, and two assists. But really, all of the starters played quite well. Al Horford only had six points, but he made up for it with eight rebounds and five assists. Drew Holiday was terrific again with 26 and seven. Derek White continues to play well, 18, three at three, and another three block performance. Um, Jalen Brown, 24, six and two. But I, as, as to your point earlier, I think despite the starters all playing really well, um, the story of this game has got to be the guys coming off the bench and contributing. I want to start with O'Shea Brissett, who got 12 points, um, and he was three of four from downtown. I think that's the real number that we want to take a look at here. Um, those shots from the corner looked pretty clean as well. What do we think of Brissett's possible role in this rotation um, and his outside shot and whether those two things are connected? Oh, they're absolutely connected. I actually, the morning of the game, wrote an article on what he needs to do to stay on the floor um, in conversation with some other thoughts uh, for some other analysts on the topic. And that is what he needs to do to stay on the floor. He needs to hit his shots, but he also needs to get some run. And both happened, and hopefully he can continue to build on this. Uh, I think a lot of his potential for success is going to depend on his coach trusting him, which for whatever reason, Mazzola has not really trusted him. Probably, as you have pointed out a couple of times, uh, his shot being the main issue. But even when his shot is not falling, he has been a positive contributor when he has gotten some minutes. So I think a little bit more patience is in order because at this point in the season, I think it's fairly safe to say that as much as I like Svi Mikhailuk's game, he, he just isn't putting enough other stuff together 
and his shot is not falling. He's shooting like 20% or something like that in the season from, from the three-point line, which is really the main reason he's on this roster. Lamar Stevens is offering some stuff, but isn't really finding the shot the same, quite the same way, even though it is, you know, it's serviceable in, in the moments when he has been hitting uh, or been getting an open shot. He's been taking them and making a couple. Uh, but I mean, he's like shooting like 30 three percent from the from the three-point line this this season as well so really i think that Brissett is the one of two the other guy isn't really even a bench player but he's one he's really the only bench player who's consistently brought things that have helped the celtics uh even when the shot isn't falling so i think that that role is kind of starting to come together as long as joe doesn't ice him again pritchard i think He's stable enough at this point and confident enough at this point that I think he's going to have a role uh, with the team moving forward as well. Uh, Hauser very clearly has cemented a role, but Nimish Keta, I think, and I want to get your thoughts on this because in my opinion, he has earned at this point, if we, if we do not have the Celtics giving him a, a full contract by the end of the season, I get for financial reasons why they're not doing it now. It makes a whole lot of sense but they need to retain him and develop him. He's only 24 years old and he has shown enough already that he is easily leapfrogged Luke, in my opinion, on what he can bring to a team. Um, I, I want to talk about Kenna in just a second, but just one more kind of quick thing to mention sure. with Brissett, who I think has actually been playing pretty well. And I, I agree. I think he has, if, if he has earned the right to kind of play more with this rotation and to earn some trust, the big thing with Brissett and why that shot matters so much is that Brissett is largely going to be playing in lineups with Peyton Pritchard and with Sam Hauser on the floor. I would bet, you know, I feel like Missoula has been most comfortable deploying him in those bench heavy second quarter lineups where usually you're talking like Al Horford at center, uh, you know, Brissett, Hauser, Pritchard, and then one of the Jays out there as the kind of primary wing creator. Um, if he wants to play he's going to have to hit shots because in those lineups in particular, there's usually enough spacing and shooting on the floor that defenses are almost always going to sag off of Brissett. So he has to make them pay for that. Now, if his shot is not falling, there's other ways that he can do that. That involves crashing the glass, that involves playing good defense, which he has been. But ultimately, as long as Brissett is on the floor in lineups where Hauser and Pritchard are also out there, defenses are going to be geared towards making sure that Hauser and Pritchard don't get shots up. They're going to be trying to take away their airspace. And Brissett is going to be the guy who is open. If he's open, he has to shoot. He has to shoot with confidence. And if he makes them at an even semi-decent clip, then I think he is going to be in line for some actual run with this team. Um, let's get to Keda, who was the other kind of standout bench performer of this. Um, so couple of things to note. Um, he had 14 points, career high, 12 rebounds. He had three assists. And in general, I think beyond the stat sheet, what I noticed is that Keda's activity is, you know, kind of very notable. He's crashing the glass. He's throwing his body around. In general, he's really kind of making his size and presence felt, in particular, in the lineups where he is with Al Horford, when both of them are on the floor. So I'm going to flip this on you because I know that, you know, both of us are pretty high on him and think that he can contribute. What are the things that is stopping Keta from having a bigger role with this team so far? 
Lukonet's a better player than he gets credit for, for one thing, and they're not just going to give up on him. They're going to let each battle for those minutes, and they're not just going to give them to Keta because he has one or two or even three good games in fairly close succession. It's a long season. He still makes pretty stupid mistakes, so a lot less than he started the season making. And you, ultimately, you know, I mean, if we're talking about giving him the role then that's the main reason. It's it's a long season. Luke has been with them a long time. They need to find out what they have in both. There is a world where that competition, the, the, the ability to stick with a championship team rather than to be, you know, trade ballast for some other player uh, might be enough to awaken a version of Luke that we have seen in the past. And, you know, his role is not going to be the sharpshooter that I think that Cam has mentioned he wants to see on previous episodes. But it would be nice to see a three every other game or so coming from him, just as a wrinkle that we don't really see from him when he is open. And he is open sometimes. Okay, I want to pause the action here and tell you that you can score early this NFL season with FanDuel, America's number one sports book. Right now, new customers get $150 in bonus bets with any winning $5 money line bet. That's $150 if your team wins. If you've been thinking about joining FanDuel, there's no better time to get in on the action. The app is super easy to use. There's a wide range of betting options, and you can take a look at things like spreads, player props, over-unders, and more. So... Visit FanDuel.com slash Boston and kick off the NFL season. FanDuel, an official partner of the NFL. We must be 21 and older and present in Massachusetts. First online real money wager only. $5 pregame money in line wager is required. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonuses are issued as a non-withdrawable bonus bet that expires seven days after receipt. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Hope is here. Gambling help line ma.org or call 800-327-5050 support play it smart from the start go to gamesensema.com or call 1-800-GAM-1234 okay back to the action but if we're talking about the financial aspects of it the the two-way salary that he is that Keta is earning right now uh does not count against the cap and making him every dollar counts right now, particularly with whether or not it could limit what they want to do in the future. And every dollar they can squeeze out of the deal they have him on now is worth trying to. They're not going to upset him if they tell him, yeah, we are going to pay you and we are going to make sure that you are paid with a guaranteed deal of multiple seasons moving forward. So don't worry about anybody being upset. Don't worry about losing anybody. This is exactly how they should be playing this. Yeah, I think if there is one thing that's kind of holding Keta back in terms of like making an active contribution on the floor, there's still a problem with perimeter players, high level perimeter players really being able to hunt him in pick and roll, particularly if the Celtics go to switching sets. Um, if you have Keta in a deep drop, more often than not, it's going to work out just because of his pure size. But whenever perimeter defender, whenever perimeter players are able to get him switched out, um, he definitely looks really uncomfortable defending on the perimeter. And I think, you know, it's not like Luke Cornett is brilliant at that, but just from, you know, the kind of experience and knowing his angles a little better, I think Missoula has a little bit more confidence in Luke to kind of bear down on those switches. But I do think Keta's 
offensive rebounding partic in particular really stands out as a high level skill that can earn him minutes in the right matchups. Um, and I think the key for him going forward is if he can just learn to get a little bit better at things like pre-switching at things like kind of knowing that the defense is probably, or that the offense is probably going to be targeting him for those switches and doing what he can to kind of quick hedge and then recover so that somebody who is better at containing the perimeter can switch back out, you know, kind of really play into, lean into that switching system. Um, I think he will ultimately have some upside that should earn him. I I think he could potentially be the third big for this team. Um, we'll see. I think there's a lot of time between now and the playoffs when it really matters. And as as well as he has played and he has played well, I want to give him some flowers. We've never seen him in the playoffs at any point in his career. I don't know what he looks like in the postseason. And my concern with him is that defenses will go out of their way to target him oh, if will. he is on the Absolutely. floor um, or offenses rather. But so far he's playing really well. He deserves his flowers. And um, I think to your point, if you can get value from him uh, at the contract that he's playing at, and th then at the very least, it makes Luke Cornett a movable piece, a, a player who could be, you know, kind of serving as outgoing salary in a trade deadline deal or something like that. I, I don't know that that deal necessarily comes along. It's not like Luke Cornett is making a ton of money, but at the very least, it gives you a little bit more flexibility. Um, one thing that uh, happened in this game that does not have to do with anything on the court is that in the second quarter, uh, we got a guest appearance by not only Wick Grosbeck, the Celtics owner, but also Donald Faison, uh, the former star of Scrubs, playing Turk for any Scrubs fans out there. Um, they took over the booth for the entire second quarter, uh, and it led to some, I don't know, some interesting commentary. Uh, it wasn't necessarily... I was nice. I like to hear about the game that's happening on the call a little. Just a... Yeah. And, you know, thank you for Drew for keeping yeah. that happening. Appreciate that, Drew. Um, definitely. Uh, shout out to Drew, friend of the pod. Um, but Carter. yeah, I, I, I don't know. It, it was it was a weird moment. Um, they were uh, on the uh, they were on the broadcast to uh, do promo for a new sitcom, which is uh, based off of Wick's life as well as his wife uh, Emilia Fazzolari, um, and her husband, her ex husband rather, George Geyer. Um, I guess very, very relatable. Yeah, right. Exactly. I guess, <laughs> yeah, I guess the premise of the sitcom is that Donald Faison is playing a, a version of Wick Grusbeck, who is a sports franchise owner who also lives with his ex or with his wife and her ex-husband, which I guess is what Wick is currently doing. I what what do you think of that as a potential for a show that lasts? multiple seasons what do we think here i think if it's done right uh it could it could i did not see the pilot that came out last night uh i will definitely check it out it's got a good cast uh good writing crew i don't see why it couldn't work it's an interesting concept uh very i don't know thoughtful i guess is the best word i can come up with i don't know like personally how tenable 
this nesting approaches where they share the same house, but they don't live there at the same time. So the kids don't really experience the disruption of a typical divorce. I think that's a really noble idea. I don't, like, I, I think most of the comic uh, relief we would see in most situations would be kind of more akin to what you would expect to see on Roseanne or some, you know, lowbrowish kind of a comedy like that. But uh, that's not what this is aiming for. So I'm really curious to see what they pull off. Um, I'll be honest in saying I'm I am not going to watch this show. Um, with apologies to Wick and Donald Faison. Uh, I, it, as you mentioned before, this does not strike me as an eminently relatable scenario. Uh, for me, as a very much not billionaire, um, I think, yeah, I I get the kind of like odd couple and a half type thing that's going on. Um. Gonna be honest, it's not for me. Uh, I will be watching the final season of Curb Your Enthusiasm. Uh, this one, not so much, but nonetheless. Um, Wick's commentary I thought was more interesting than Donald Faison's, um, in particular because Wick um, was asked about uh, the Jalen Brown Supermax, which was the big story of the offseason. Will the Celtics re-sign Jalen Brown and make him the highest paid player in the NBA? Spoiler alert, they did. Um, and he was asked about whether he is okay with that, um, which I guess is kind of a self-answering question in that he did it. So he has to be at least someone okay for it. But he said um, something along the lines of, you invest in making the team as good as it can be. If you can't do that, you can't be the Celtics owner. Um, when we're asked about Jalen Brown's contract, um, this is music to Celtics fans' ears, I'm sure. But what did you think of these comments regarding Jalen's extension? Well, that comment actually almost flew in under the radar because it was really supposed to be about Jalen, but it was broad enough where we uh, definitely need to be waving that in every social media forum if there's ever a, a whiff of financial reticence in the near-term future with this team. If the unthinkable happens and they don't get back to the finals this year, uh, never mind win it, yeah, Maybe we might want to be, you know, a little bit more gentle with, you know, crucifying him for saying something like this. But if this team does what we all think it should do, then uh, this is something to tattoo on his forehead. <laughs> with all respect to you, Wick, uh, if you do bulk at paying Derek White, for example. Yeah, I think where this comes into play is that the Celtics are going to have a really busy offseason this year, regardless of whether they win the title or not. I think, at you know, if they don't win the title, perhaps changes will be made. But ultimately, if you want this team to be as good as it can be, um, then it probably means that you're looking at extending Derek White, extending Drew Holiday, and extending Jason Tatum all in this offseason, which is going to result in the largest luxury tax bill in NBA history and is going to be easily the most expensive team ever fielded. Um, You're talking levels that are equivalent to some entire country's gross national product in terms of what is going to be spent. Yeah. So Wick, uh, I hope you, I hope you are ready to do that. I hope you are uh, interested in investing to make this team as good as it can be, because I do not want to be the one paying that tax bill next year. Now, I would love it if you paid that billionaire owner, Wick, Wick Grosbeck, because it would make me much happier as a Celtics fan. And it's not my money that would be going into those pockets. So um, I don't I don't want to do any pocket watching. But what I will say is 
If you're going to talk big, spend big. That's my uh, Christmas message to you, Wick Grosbeck. And I'm sure that Derek White, Drew Holiday, and Jason Tatum will all appreciate your generosity and Christmas spirit come, say, July or so. Um, speaking of Derek White, once again, just want to mention that uh, he had three blocks. And I know I mentioned that earlier about the Kings game. Well, I mentioned it because he had three blocks in the Clippers game as the co-president of the Derek White fan club that is currently on this broadcast. Uh, I once again am obligated to shout out Derek White, who continues to be the best shot blocking guard in the entire NBA. And I think at this point, we now need to shift into getting serious about this Derek White all-star propaganda. Folks, Derek White deserves to be an all-star. He is one of the best guards in the Eastern Conference. Uh, he's been playing absolutely out of his mind this year. And I feel like there's a credible argument that in some ways he's been the Celtics' second best player this year. So uh, the Derek White propaganda experience is coming in full force over the course of the next couple of weeks. Celtics lab listeners, get ready. It's going to happen and it's not going to stop happening. Um, any additional thoughts before we move into the breakdown of the Celtics' Christmas Day experience against the Los Angeles Lakers? Just that for those of you who are reticent to vote for Derek White, because he doesn't have the typical numbers, think of the Atlanta Hawks that got, I think, four All-Stars in, in one All-Star game. Mm -hmm. uh, they all had lower than usual numbers. Or even to make it more relatable to Celtics fans, think of Marcus Smart winning Defensive Player of the Year. He had a profile which did not really resemble most guards, and what he did on the perimeter was worthy enough to keep him in that conversation to the point where he won it. Most guards do not block three shots in a game in their career, right? Never mind several times in the space of a month. So, yeah, he deserves to be an all-star. I'm even going to make a more relevant example. Um, Drew Holiday, last year, made the all-star game, despite not having, I think, the stat profile that a typical all-star player would. And this was not a particularly controversial selection. Pretty much everybody agreed that Drew Holiday was a worthy all-star last year. Um, Derek White and Drew Holiday are putting up pretty similar numbers. With Derek White, it's, as always, you know, the shot blocking is amazing. The shooting efficiency is amazing. The intangibles is where Derek White really stands out. This guy just finds a way to impact the game, whether it's with shooting, passing, rebounding, defense. No matter what happens, whenever Derek White is on the floor, we always feel better about the Celtics' chances of playing well and winning that game. So folks, hit those buttons. Hit it two, three times a day. Derek White, all-star game. Let's make it happen. And with that, let's transition over to breaking down the Celtics-Lakers Christmas Day experience. All right, welcome back, dear listener. We're jumping into the lab portion of the program and with us, special guest for the holidays of SI Media Group, it's Bobby Kravitsky. Welcome back to the pod, Bobby. How is your Christmas going? My Christmas has been tremendous. As someone who covers the Celtics, they made the content and workload much more enjoyable. And I think people, as much as everyone loves to vent after a loss, Business tends to go up when they win, especially in a rivalry clash against the Lakers. So it's a, a pretty good Christmas for me. How's everyone doing? Doing great. Can't complain. Had a lovely holiday time with my partner Annabelle's family up in Tuckahoe, New York. Watched a very fun basketball game, and I'm excited to break it down with both of you. JQ, 
how is your Xmas going? Not too shabby. Had a nice bacalao torta here in Mexico City, which is how we roll in these parts on this day. And then I got to watch a fun game where it looked like things were going to come apart in the second quarter, uh, even maybe a little bit later in the game as well. And the Celtics dug into defense, as we were discussing off air, and did something we've been begging for. So it was a good day. All right. So let's get into it. Let's just jump right into the game. Um, Celtics pull off a big Christmas Day win against their hated arch rivals, the Los Angeles Lakers in L.A., to cap off a four-game road swing in which they go three and one with the only loss being, of course, the aforementioned Golden State collapse in overtime. Uh, Bobby, let's swing it to you first. Um, let's give a, let's get the overall impression. What did the Celtics do uh, to pull away for this win here? Yeah, and first off, I'll say that I think the loss in Golden State, Drew Holiday spoke post-game about how that really set the tone for the rest of the trip and not to spend too much time rehashing their past matchups, but you could see it in the way they came out against the Sacramento Kings. And there were those anecdotes from the NBC sports, Boston broadcast crew of drew Carter and Brian Scalabrini that it was dead quiet when they were going from San Francisco to Sacramento. And then they just came out and they put it on them from start to finish. And then they get another dominant win 145 108 against the Clippers. So you could see the Celtics, backed it up and they channeled I think the lesson and the frustrations of that loss in the bay into the rest of their California stay and as far as this one we are going to talk about what Justin teased in terms of something that we've been begging for but I was really struck by their offensive approach they shot 31 percent from beyond the arc in this game and just the pace even when they weren't playing up tempo they gave themselves most of the shot clock to operate with, starting their attack around the 18-second mark on a consistent basis, that they were well-spaced, and that allowed them to then correctly target the right mismatch. They went at Austin Reeves repeatedly in the second half. They were driving downhill, creating good shots, and so to me, it was the way they played, despite not shooting well and overcoming those struggles from three-point range, that really stood out as much as anything for me. Yeah, the fact that they were only shooting 30% from three and still found a way to win and that Joe Missoula did not get in the way of them running the same play over and over and over and over again. Like there was He loves that. Over- That's right yeah. up Joe's alley. Yeah. <laughs> it was it was a beauty, a beautiful thing to watch. We'll get into the minutiae for each quarter uh in just a moment, but thing that jumped out to me is that in particular, I think Jason Tatum did a great job setting the tone tonight. Um He, you know, I think Jason Tatum is the master of the quiet 30 ball where you don't see the explosive scoring presence. You don't see him like lighting teams up and getting into heaters unless it's against the Sixers in the playoff series or something like that. Um, But in general, you know, he just kind of chips away with timely baskets. He was getting to the line. He was getting threes. um, He was just finding his flow in the offense but he was really dictating the floor game throughout. He made a number of really good passes, key timely rebounds. And in general, I think he just played a really complete game from start to finish. It didn't really like jump off of the screen that he was like completely dominating. But if you look at his pace and his approach to the game, just really solid effort from Tatum all around. And it's the kind of thing where he might not be winning MVP this year. I think that vote is probably left the dock at this point but 
uh, if he plays like this on key matchup nights, um, the Celtics are going to be a bear to take on. Like just a really spot on floor game. Let's get into each quarter. I want to kind of break down uh, bit by bit what we're seeing. So, Bobby, you're going to get first crack at all of these. Um, we'll start with the first quarter. What did you see in the kind of initial phases of the game uh, as far as your observations went? So right away, what you look for is how are they matching up defensively? And it was smart to put Kristaps Porzingis on Jared Vanderbilt, let him roam as the free safety. And it wasn't so much that the Celtics were keeping the Lakers from the basket, but when you have a primary defender there plus a seven foot three center, it's going to be difficult to score. And even on quality looks from LeBron and Anthony Davis, they were having trouble putting points on the board. And so the Celtics, that fuels their transition attack. They go up 12 to nothing. They build that to an 18 point lead. And so that's what I saw was that defense laying the foundation for their success and allowing them to find an early rhythm. It's interesting to me that um, as he ages and kind of develops into, I think, a still incredible but different player in LeBron James, he has, you know, he kind of uses the first quarter as a feel out where he tries to kind of, you know, see what the defense is throwing at him, kind of see where his spots are going to be in the game and kind of pace. But against this Celtics team with their offense being what it is with the spacing with Porzingis in the post and with Brown in particular, who I think has really done a nice job, like staying super aggressive at the very beginning of games this year. Um, I, and I think that's intentional. I think Missoula has basically told the Celtics like, Hey, first quarters are JBs. Like he's setting the tone. Um, but against this type of team with this kind of offense, you really can't afford to have a feel-out quarter if you're LeBron James or really anybody for that matter. The Celtics have been coming out swinging in these first quarters in so many of these games, and it really gets you know the tempo and the pace going for sure, but it also puts the defense on their heels. And I think one thing that stood out to me is that the in, in kind of hindsight, the deep hole that the Lakers were in they had to claw really hard to get back from that. And by the time the fourth quarter rolled around, it seemed to me that they were pretty gassed. We'll get into that yeah. later. But I think that's one of the things that jumped out to me about this first quarter in hindsight. JQ, what do you got? You guys pretty comprehensively covered what I saw. The only other things I would add is Boston's attack early was a lot more varied. Uh, it was really just uh, Anthony Davis and LeBron to start on offense for the Lakers. And while I realize that is typically how they roll, they really didn't get any significant contributions from anyone else in the first quarter, at least until that 9-0 run at the end of the quarter. Uh, there was a little bit of the, oh my goodness, we are so amazing kind of Celtics for a little bit. And because, as you have noted, there's that feeling out quarter that tends to be how the Lakers roll, it ended up putting Boston a little bit at ease in a way that has really hurt them in the past, but it didn't last after that run, like immediately into the next quarter they responded, which I guess we could jump to that. For sure. Um, just a couple of stats to highlight. As we mentioned before, Jalen Brown got off to a super hot start. He was five of six. Um, and, you know, that contributed to a 12-0 run right from opening tip. Um, Jalen and Kristaps Porzingis, despite Porzingis getting two fouls early, um, they had some really good moments. 
including a nifty behind the back pass into Porzingis in a post mismatch, which was just a beautiful play. And in general, I think Porzingis really established himself in the post uh, with Brown as a kind of uh, primary scoring threat. Um, one thing that was of note to me is that Missoula did not take Porzingis out after the two fouls. He actually left him in for a little bit longer. And I think that did to some degree help. That's um, a little bit of a risky gamble, but it paid off this time. Um, the Lakers made a late run, but it was pretty clearly uh, the Celtics quarter to start off. What else, JQ? I wanted to touch on your earlier comments about Keda's difficulty with perimeter players. This was not a great game for him in terms of what he was able to contribute that shows up in the stat sheet, but considering how not great of a matchup it was, I think he acquitted himself pretty well. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I think Keda, um, he he had some moments in this game where he was pretty clearly uh, overmatched, particularly I did notice that LeBron was definitely directing the defense to attack him on the perimeter. And Torian Prince got really hot from deep. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of that was with Keda on the floor. So I still think the defensive issues are very much there. But, you know, with Keda, it's all about energy, rebounding, and just kind of using his size to influence possessions. I think there were definitely some moments where he did that, even if overall, I think he did kind of get played off the floor. Um, let's move to that second quarter. Um, so obviously, Keda starts off with a goaltend, um, but, you know, a bunch of other things happen. This was the quarter where the Lakers really made um, a pretty impressive run. Um, Bobby, I'll swing it to you. What did you see from the Lakers' response that kind of, if anything, might give you pause or, um, you know, just kind of general observations about this quarter? So, and this is, I'm not ducking the question here. I liked the Celtics' approach offensively upon first review, at least. Maybe I go back and look at it tomorrow and change my mind because there's suddenly room to be more criti critical when you get that second evaluation of it. But Overall, I thought it was a pretty balanced approach. They started the first, the second quarter. They were three for six from beyond the arc. Pritchard had a pair of layups. They had another basket from just outside the paint. It was just a matter of threes weren't falling. And because of that, the Lakers were able to live in transition. And now all of a sudden, guys are loose. They're in rhythm. That fuels more people getting to touch the basketball. And I think that what happened with Keita and Torian Prince specifically was more about a defensive structure and philosophy where they the Lakers just don't have enough floor spacing right now. And it was a mistake to leave Prince open and treat him like he's Rui Hachimura or Jared Vanderbilt, but he was knocking them down, credit to him. I don't think that was Keita, you know, getting lost in the shuffle, if you will, or the, you know, slow processing speed. And now he's not getting out there when he needs to be recovering. I think that was by design on the Celtics part. And it really worked against the poor shooters on the Lakers, but Torian Prince's reputation is as a three and D wing and he made them pay for it. Yeah, no, I think that's probably accurate. And I think overall the process was pretty sound. I noted that um, Stephen A. Smith and Mike Wilbon were apoplectic at halftime that the <laughs> yeah. Celtics were taking to too many threes and missing them. And uh, as we Missoula ball truthers here know, there is no such thing as taking too many threes. And that ultimately did bear out. But, you know, when it looks ugly, it looks ugly. And the Celtics started missing threes and, um, you know, things gum up and the Lakers get out in transition. And, and in, in the second quarter, I have no problem with bombing away from three. And again, <clears throat> they were good shots, at least for the most part. 
So if ever you're going to do it, yeah, you can look at the margins and say they got outscored 34-26 overall and 14-8 in the paint as Anthony Davis went off in the second quarter. But if you're ever going to do it, the second quarter makes as much sense as any because of the margin for error, you have to overcome it after. For sure. That that There's kind of two big pieces that stood out to me in that second quarter. The first, obviously, what you just mentioned is that Anthony Davis was terrific, both in the second quarter and throughout this game. But the second quarter is where he really started to assert his will as an offensive player. Um, it seemed like there were multiple times where, you know, Porzingis sitting in foul trouble, Celtics playing bench heavy units and chucking up a lot of threes. And Anthony Davis got a lot of mismatches that he completely abused. He's playing as well as I've seen him play. And if there's any sort of optimism that the Lakers can come out of with this game, it's that Anthony Davis um, is looking really, really good. Um, the other thing, of course, that we have to talk about is uh, the collision. LeBron oh, yes. James, LeBron James uh, need Jalen Brown in the back, leading to both of them collapsing on the court, though I will note that LeBron James took a pretty long look at Jalen Brown on the court before also collapsing into the heap that he was in and then got up and seemed to be well, just fine. Um, so fine enough buying to into do it. the conspiracy theory that he saw Jalen was hurt and he said, oh, you know what? My knee's pretty banged up too. I'm not saying a conspiracy theory. I'm just noting that there was the a The man did a pause. chase down block, which was successful <laughs> uh, to an extent. We could talk about the challenge uh, and Scott Foster's uh, hilarious comment. Uh, yes, Scott Foster, of course, um, master of the media. Uh, he's goes to the stands afterwards and says, uh, after confirming that the chase down block was a clean block, you're not going to like this in reference <laughs> to the Lakers fans, which was always fun. Uh, of course, that was a foul on Torian Prince. Uh, yours truly called that as he was watching it. Just throwing that out there. Um, yeah, no, I mean, obviously there's that. Uh, Jalen Brown goes back to the locker room at half. I think my heart was definitely a little bit in my throat um, Bobby, when Jalen went back to the locker room, how were you feeling about the Celtics' chances of actually winning this game? Well, I knew that if he could come back, he would, right? And so I was looking at the second quarter and kind of putting it on an island where, yeah, the Boston was on its heels that frame, and the Lakers had really found something where they could capitalize on their size down low, and Anthony Davis was going off. So you start to wonder, okay, at what point is Drew Holiday going to get this assignment because it's just not working right now. And so I, I kind I didn't look at it as, oh boy, they might lose this game. I more just looked at it and thought, okay, right now it's pretty obvious to everyone that Jalen's hurt. They're not shooting well from three and Anthony Davis is going off, but let's see what happens in the second half. Yeah. That was one of the things I was alluding to that in seasons past, that would be just, you just knew that that would be the end of the game. Right. But we've been conditioned positively this season enough to realize that that collapse that third quarter collapse particularly this season has we have not been seeing great third quarters from them uh this is one of their better third quarters uh that we've seen i think maybe not the best but one of the best yeah let's jump right into it so of course uh listeners jalen brown returns from the locker room uh to start the third quarter with a t uh one point game celtics with a sliver of a lead that evaporates immediately when LeBron James gets an open layup. Um, but after that, uh, the Lakers took the lead, and then the Celtics kind of middle to end of this third quarter really turned on the Jets. Bobby, what did you see 
as far as the Celtics and how they were able to separate in the third quarter? What worked for them? I saw Kristaps Porzingis going off that repeatedly they were getting switches even when the Lakers didn't have to. And when you do that, when you're not forced to switch, it typically ends poorly for the defense. And especially when you have someone who's 7-3 and can punish you down low, that's why he's here. And that was a huge difference, again, because they weren't shooting well tonight. So to be able to have easy baskets down low and Porzingis getting to the free throw line, that was huge for them. And then defensively, I didn't. it wasn't so much that I thought they were great on that side of the ball, but you could see that they were focused, that misses from long range didn't take from their physicality either. And I thought the rotations were pretty good. So I, I liked the, again, defense being the foundation for their success and targeting the right mismatches offensively. I would add into the later in the, in that quarter, the bench really stepped up. There were some timely makes from Hauser, uh, from uh, Al shooting, I think a quarter three pointer. It was not by a long shot, the best bench performance of the year, but it was one of the most timely bench performances of the year in terms of shifting the momentum back in Boston's way. Another thing that jumped out to me is that um, one thing the Celtics really struggled with in the second quarter was uh, they were getting killed on offensive rebounding. That was a big part of why Anthony Davis was playing so well, just creating a lot of extra opportunities. They really tightened the screws in the second half and committed to some quality gang rebounding. I noticed Drew Holiday in particular was really getting active uh, and making sure that the Lakers were only getting one possession, which uh, I think matters a lot particularly when you're going against an older team, those second possessions are the life of a slower, older half court based team. Um, and if you don't give them that, there's so many leak out opportunities that as the game progressed, you could see that Boston was really starting to capitalize on some of those. Um, Jalen Brown started heating up again after uh, the injury scare. Um, but I think one thing that really jumped out to me was, you know, we mentioned earlier Jason Tatum's process. He was terrific with the second unit in particular uh, in this game. He did a really nice job getting Al Horford and Sam Hauser going. Um, Derek White, of course, terrific. The Derek White all-star campaign continues to gain momentum. J.J. Redick just tweeted that, J that uh, Derek White should be an all-star. J.J., 100% agree. Come on the pod anytime that you want to talk about how Derek White should be an all-star. Um, yeah, no, the third quarter, I think, was um, a real standout for Boston in terms of just getting back to their process. And one thing that Missoula has been harping on all year is closing quarters and how important it is for this team to really close these quarters strong. You saw that today with their process in the third quarter. Boston really committed to finishing out that quarter strong. And one thing that was kind of curious, and uh, I'd be interested to hear your take on this, Bobby, is that um, Darvin Ham actually uh, opted to not close the third quarter particularly strong. I know that LeBron James is 38, and it's frankly miraculous that he is playing as well as he is. But what did you think of Ham's uh, you know, process in terms of taking LeBron out for what would ultimately become that kind of critical third quarter run for Boston? Save your chips for the fourth quarter. I understand the Lakers are not a good shooting team, but you go into the final 12 minutes down by nine, you're right there in striking distance. It certainly didn't go their way and credit the Celtics for that in the final frame. But I have no problem with not playing LeBron at the end of a third quarter. Teams typically do not play their stars 
to end that frame and the Celtics, that was a switch. I'm so glad that you brought up Tatum's facilitating. He only gets credited with two traditional assists, but he was the engine that made it all go for them offensively. And that was a switch where it wasn't Jalen Brown closing out the third. It was Tatum. And he certainly did a tremendous job. So credit Joe Missoula, credit the players on the floor. You guys also touched on the second unit for making that work. One other player that I want to shout out here is Drew Holiday did an excellent job against LeBron James. James only had two points in the third quarter. Holiday was able to mix up preventing him from getting to the basket with still finding time to be a free safety. And the play that stands out there is when he comes off of LeBron, he blitzes Anthony Davis, nearly forces the turnover, and Kristaps Porzingis picks up a cutting James. They get the block. Some say it's Derek White. It got credited in the stat sheet to Porzingis. So I'll it's give it to him on this Yeah, yeah I, I thought it was Porzingis so, as well. The but I, certainly, I had to look at that. it a few times. And that play right there was an example of when the Celtics were on a string defensively and also just how disruptive Drew Holiday was at that end of the floor. I thought it was interesting. Like that was the most layups I may have ever seen LeBron miss in a single game. And Drew definitely had a hand in several of them, but they just looked really, really tired by the end of the third. And I wonder if they just all kind of knew or even discussed the fact that they just didn't have it. Because as you mentioned, they cut it to single digits in the final frame, but they never really went for it. Like, most teams, particularly on a Christmas Day game, on a game between the Lakers and the Celtics, you would think that they would be really going for it. But I mean, they have not done well since the in-season tournament. And I don't know, they they might have just uh, spent much of their energy for the foreseeable future just to, to, to do that because they did not seem to to even want to try to do it tonight. That is kind of interesting. Yeah, let's jump into the fourth quarter um, now that we're here. You know, I did notice that with the last two minutes in the game, or three minutes, really, I, I was pretty nervous. You know, 10-point lead, 13-point lead is really not much with three minutes in the NBA today. But the Lakers kind of curiously took their foot off the gas um, towards the end. Let's go back, though, to the start of that fourth quarter. Really chaotic sequence um, to start things off. Sloppy basketball on both ends. Lots of turnovers, lots of running around, some not-so-great shots. But I actually think to some degree that that sloppiness played to the Celtics advantage. Um, you know, I think one of the things that uh, this team has been doing better at than last year's team is surviving chaos situations and being able to navigate those. And sometimes that does happen in a basketball game. Um, Bobby, what stood out to you as far as kind of stabilizing that kind of chaotic start to the fourth quarter? Yeah, Joe Missoula talks about them being able to throw a curveball at other teams. You also have to be able to hit it when it comes at you. And sometimes that's not from the opposition. It's just how the game is unfolding. So like you said, sloppy is the perfect word to describe it. And out of that, the Celtics seem to find their rhythm to hit the curveball. And then it became this offensive approach that we started the show praising them for where they're going to work early in the shot clock. They're targeting Austin Reeves and making a living off of it and consistently just getting good shots and playing smart basketball. So they only had four turnovers in the second half. Same for the first. Three of those, you know, at least two of them came early in the fourth quarter, but they took care of the ball for the most part, and that was huge. So I really liked their approach and how they were able to get Austin Reeves on an island with no help. And that's why I think the Lakers, they ultimately waved the white flag a little bit early because they couldn't dictate the terms of play 
and they're watching Rui Hachimura and Jared Vanderbilt get sagged off of when they have the ball. And that's kind of making it where you have to kick it out to them or just bang your head against the wall, which wasn't working either in the second half. And then offensively for the Celtics, they're scoring at will on them. So it just kind of came a point where the lack of energy and emptying the tank for the in-season tournament, plus just not having the personnel to land a counterpunch. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that one thing that uh, really stood out in terms of the kind of chaos portion of that fourth quarter is that um, ultimately the guys who really stabilized things for Boston were Drew Holiday and Al Horford, um, who despite, you know, kind of being in a like live ball crazy situation with bodies flying everywhere and with all sorts of weird kind of mangled possessions, Drew Holiday's rebounding and Al Horford's kind of patience shooting uh, and just kind of getting in the way defensively really helped to stabilize what could have been, I think, a chaotic stretch for a previous iteration of this team. You know, it's just so useful having kind of quality vets that have seen every single situation in front of them before in those two guys to really kind of bring them back to earth. Um, it started off crazy, but after stabilizing Derek White and Jason Tatum did a really nice job targeting Austin Reeves, as you mentioned, Bobby, getting into the flow of the offense and really getting downhill and it's starting to attack the rim, relying a little bit less on the three ball and kind of grinding their way to a victory. They also got to the line a lot in this quarter, which I think really helped them. Again, that's something where typically, you know, the vet team trying to slow the pace of the game down and chip away at a big lead wants to get to the free throw line. But the Celtics were the team that really started to implement um, control of that area throughout. JQ, anything that we missed from the fourth quarter or really anything else in this game? Not that I could think of. That was a pretty comprehensive treatment for a single game. Uh, I will say that one thing that did stand out to me, we mentioned the shooting. Uh, the Lakers actually shot better from three in this game and still ended up losing the contest. The... Rim protection for Boston, I think it was like seven blocks to one. That's really the only other thing that stands out in Boston's favor significantly uh, in terms of uh, team statistics. And honestly, I do think that the Lakers are one of the better teams in the West, but they, they really need to figure out how they're going to navigate the rest of their season uh, with this, shall we say, lack of energy if there's going to be any chance of a Banner 18 collision, uh, which I'm sure the NBA and we would love. But uh, based on what we just saw, I am not entirely sure that that would be the most exciting seven-game series or even a seven-game series without some other changes. There is one statistical margin that jumps out to me that um, really tells the story of how Boston won this game, which is that Boston um, beat the Lakers by seven assists in that margin, 31 to 24. And I think that really tells the story of this game. There were a number of possessions where the Celtics offense was really crisp, you know, two, three, four, five passes. Um, they did a nice job, too, of passing with intent to penetrate rather than just kind of passing the ball around the arc. You know, I know that sometimes um, this team is a little guilty of overpassing and just kind of swinging the ball around the top of the arc aimlessly until hopefully a three generates. This time around, and again, you know, I, I know I keep going back to this, but Jason Tatum in particular was looking to use passing as a way to kind of penetrate the interior of the defense 
and then get into kickouts. And there were a few beautiful possessions that I think really stood out to me. Um, and ultimately that plus seven assist margin, I think is a big part of why Boston won this game. Um, we got a couple other things to talk about uh, here in the lab portion of the game. Bobby, any other stats that you want to hit on before we kind of jump into our next set of topics? Yeah, and I think both the assists and how well the Celtics were screening in this game, especially the second half, set up the foundation for some of these numbers. I mean, look at how many examples there were where Boston got a bucket because they're going after, again, I'll bring them up, Austin Reeves, and there's nothing that the screening defender can do. He's taken out of the equation. So now it is Austin Reeves on an island, and he's just not athletic enough. He doesn't have the foot speed to be able to stay in front of someone. So that, that was one thing is the screening. You touched on the ball movement, 58 points in the paint, an eight point advantage in that category. When you're not shooting well, that you got to score from somewhere. And that's how they did it. And then on top of it, being able to get stops and have a pretty sound strategy in terms of who they wanted to leave open outside of Torian Prince that translates to being able to play in transition. What basketball team at any level is not at their best when they're able to get out and run and push the pace. So they have a 23 to 14 edge in fast break scoring. And I mentioned the ball, the ball security earlier, only eight turnovers to the Lakers 12. And most importantly, sometimes it's just the giveaways that will cost the team, but you say, man, they really didn't capitalize on those mistakes. 19 to three in points off turnovers in favor of Boston. So I really thought that the Celtics in those categories, points in the paint, fast break scoring, ball security, and points off turnovers, that they were outstanding. And again, when you look at all those wins on the margins, most of them point to the Celtics' favor. For sure. All right, so um, that's it in terms of the game recap. We got a couple of other things to talk about. Um, just some other news that we should drop in here. Uh, Mark Stein suggests that the Boston Celtics are monitoring a familiar face, Kelly Olynyk, in his situation on the Utah Jazz. Now, he does not say that Boston is trying to trade for Kelly Olynyk. Justin, walk us through why they're not trying to do that. Yeah, so I'm sure by the time you were listening to this, You've seen one of the many articles discussing how the Boston Celtics want to trade for Kelly Olynyk, and I'm sure they would love to trade for Kelly Olynyk. but there's some difficulties there. Namely, one of the things that my, I myself, thanks thanks to uh, Yossi uh, Goslin, our resident uh, friend of the pod, cap guru, who clued me in on this when I was throwing some, some ideas around. I, I don't remember if it was for him or not specifically, but under the new CBA, you cannot do the kind of trade that brought Malcolm Brogdon, for example, to the Celtics because you cannot aggregate more than one veteran minimum contract or minimum contract of any kind uh, into one of those deals, right? So that means the only way that you can actually trade for Kelly Olynyk with the, the contracts that Boston has on their roster, even with Peyton Pritchard's poison pill contract, the only way to get it done would be to trade Al Horford or a larger contract, at which point you are at best making a lateral move and probably a, a backwards move, right? Now, I would certainly say that that is a backwards move. With I agree. Not everyone agrees and, with us. And it's not oh. happening. They're, they're yeah. not trading Al Horford, period. And they're definitely not doing it if the return is Kelly Olynyk. Exactly. Yeah. Love, love Kelly. Great guy. Wonderful. Would love to have him back in green. Uh, Al Horford is way more important to this team. So I don't think that's happening. But 
There is another oh, wait, possibility. There is more. Exactly. Yeah. Walk us through it, JQ. Okay, so regular listeners can recall when Ashrod Blakely was on the last pod, and we actually discussed exactly the kind of scenario that the Celtics would be monitoring such a situation for. Namely, the fact that more CBA stuff, apologies if this makes your eyes glaze over, but it's important in this context. Teams that are above the second apron, like the Celtics are, cannot sign free agents who make large amounts of money, namely anything over the full MLE. This season, that would be $12.4 million. Kelly Olynyk makes $12.2 million. So he would be able to join the Celtics if bought out. And he might go someplace else. You never know. But he does have a relationship. He does know the, the, the organization. And he would get some real time. So when you consider all of those things, the possibility of adding a ring to his repertoire with a team that drafted him, and the fact that the Celtics really could use a player with his skill set, of course they're monitoring him. And Stein does not make stuff up. Stein does not do things that are disingenuous. He said something, a lot of people ran with it in the wrong direction in a very understandable way. But if you read very closely what he wrote, he said they are monitoring it, and for good reason. Yeah, as much as uh, I would love to have Kelly back uh, on the Boston Celtics, at the end of the day, the ball is in Danny Ainge's court. And I got to be honest, I don't think it's super likely, given that um, in all likelihood, Kelly is going to get some trade buzz. I think there's going to be a number of different teams that will be looking to employ his services. However, if he does get traded to, for example, I don't know, a team that is not so much looking to contend, there is definitely buyout potential there. But knowing Trader Danny, I would be pretty surprised if he just lets Kelly walk for nothing. Um, all right, so that's all for the news and for the game segment. We have one more segment that we're going to try and wrap things up with. It is Christmas, and we are having a grand old time here talking about the holidays. And, you know, um, I had a nice time uh, this morning. Uh, my girlfriend's parents got me a lovely shirt in general. Um, let's be real here, people. The, the presents are what it's all about. And to that end, Bobby, we're going to swing it to you to play a little game about some presents that you might want uh, for this year's holiday season. We're going to do three categories. One present you want in the end. To NBA. return. To return. Oh, oh interesting. yes. Interesting. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. true. Um, sometimes, no, that's fair. And sometimes you get presents that you want to re-gift. Sometimes, you know, you want to keep the receipt and send it back. And so to that end, Bobby, um, we're going to swing it to you. What is something you would like to re-gift or return to the store for the following three categories in the NBA with the Boston Celtics and in life generally? Something you want to send back with a receipt. Um, let's start with in the NBA. What is something you, Bobby, would like to send back? Ooh, something I'd like to send back in the NBA. If you had asked me before the season, I would have said the in-season tournament, but that turned out to be quite the success and generating buzz with the Encore product is a huge win for the association. So that that's a tough one there. To, for the NBA to send back, you know what? It's actually what we were just talking about. I'm not a fan of the new collective bargaining agreement, so I would like to go to the old one, this more punitive one, and the ramifications of it. I don't enjoy the structure of it. It feels to me like the players ultimately lost out on this. And it, you know, that tends to happen, but too significant a margin in my estimation. So I'll send back the new collective bargaining agreement. 
We have to learn stuff. Uh, the middle yeah. class of the NBA is just eradicated at this point. It's either mid-level exception or lower or very close to maxing up. Like there is no, no one wants these anymore. popsicle headaches. Yeah. All right, JQ, what do you want to send back in the NBA? So this might surprise people, but I actually want to see Christmas Day jerseys. They need to bring them back. Why? Well, if they're really, really ugly, you will never see them again, ever, ever. No one wears, have you ever, ever seen anyone wearing a Christmas Day jersey? Right? And if it's great, then it's a classic and people will get them and maybe we will actually see one for once. But it's a perfect arena where if you want to experiment and get weird, there you go, right? Uh, I know it's a little bit odd, particularly because I have been, you know, I hate the jerseys from way back in the day. I hate the Enya uh, Celtic uh, pub Celtics jerseys. Like, I'm not a big fan of jersey experimentation, but in my opinion, this is the venue if you're going to get weird with jerseys to do it. Yeah, and I think that, um, you know, there's so many iconic Christmas Day looks like, you know, I know the IT4 Celtics are probably not in the same tier as this team, but man, they have some good Christmas jerseys. Um, I would like to send back to the NBA the indefinite suspensions that keep on getting tossed around for various um, player problems and aggressions and things like that. Folks, the indefinite suspension is a little bit of a cop-out. Pick a set number of games, say, this is the amount of games that you're suspended for, and then have dudes come back. I think Draymond Green's most recent suspension is a perfect example of this. If Draymond Green is ultimately suspended for eight games for repeatedly punching people in the face, that is a bad look for the NBA. I uh, you know, am totally in favor of Draymond getting whatever help he needs. I would love to see him back on the court. He's a terrific basketball player, but folks, Let's just have a set amount of suspensions, set amount of games, and be done with it. I don't want to see like this lame, cop-out, indefinite suspension that people get all up in arms about. They're like, oh, an unprecedented punishment. Can't believe that the NBA would take such a strong stand on that. If Draymond is suspended for two weeks, is that actually a strong stand? I don't think so. I'm out on the indefinite suspension. Anyway. All right, Bobby. You have receipts for one thing about this Boston Celtics team, a team that has currently got the best record in the league, is coming off of a huge Christmas Day win against their arch rivals on the road, in general playing some excellent basketball. But what do you want to re-gift about this team? I really like a lot of the changes from the things that I think all contributed to their demise a season ago. They're all of a sudden playing better in the third quarters. They're overcoming when they don't shoot well, from beyond the arc there's all you know defense is again the foundation of their success led by Jalen Brown they're pushing the tempo so at the moment it's easy to get lost in what they're doing well three and one on a challenging west coast trip yes I know Kawhi didn't play for the Clippers but to me I still look at this team and it's more so I'm holding on to the receipts than getting ready to return the gift it's more like hey Let's not put this in the wash just yet because it could shrink and ruin the chances. If we're going to wear this Christmas sweater, let's make sure to avoid the wine and anything that might stain it. Because while this is all great right now, the Warriors game is also a reminder that they are maturing. They haven't fully made the transformation just yet. So some of these factors that they deserve praise for right now could also be what ultimately comes back to burn them. And therefore, you don't lose the receipt. 
All right, JQ, you got something to return for this team? Yeah, the decision to not have Jordan Walsh play in one freaking minute of the season to this point. I get it. He has a lot of work to do. But he could have played in the last two or three minutes of this game. He definitely could have played in the last several minutes of the last two games. And if they don't have him playing in the Detroit game one way or another, win or lose, I'm going to be first in line with my receipts. You would have to think that uh, one of the Christmas presents that Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum probably have earned is a day off against the lowly Detroit Pistons. Um, Celtics, just a quick aside, please do not be the team that the Pistons break their losing streak against. Come on, guys. I know that they're probably going to sit a bunch of people, but like O'Shea Brissett, uh, Peyton Pritchard, Sam Hauser, my dudes, let's get this done. I'm not trying to So be that mad. that was going to be my question is, how would you two asking both individually balance if they go three and one on this West coast trip, they win in LA against the Lakers on Christmas, but then come home and they're the team, the Pistons get over the hump against. Um, I would not be super thrilled by that. Uh, that's <laughs> a hugely devastating type of loss, but uh, the good news about that forthcoming game is that I think this is the prime time case for the Derek white all-star experience. Um, I'm saying rest the Jays rest Porzingis Let's get Derek White onto that all-star team. Derek, I want to see 45 from yep. you against this Pistons Get team. that number up. Um, for me, it's hard to find things to want to return for this Celtics team. So I'm going to return something from the Celtics ether generally. Edie Garden, the new seats are too small. I don't know what to tell you, but the last time that I was there sitting in the bleachers, I was cramped. It was uncomfortable. It was not a good time. And the TD Garden is already cramped and uncomfortable as it is or was beforehand. But at least then it was a little bit better. I had a little bit more elbow room to work with. The bleacher seats in the TD Garden are too small, folks. And if I'm going to ask Celtics to return anything this year, it would be that. Please return to the old seats. They were not great, but they were at least better than what they currently are. I have heard this complaint in several corners. Yeah. All right, Bobby, we'll give you the last crack for this last prompt. Um, what is something you want to return in terms of having your receipts for life generally? Obviously, you know, holiday season, a lot of things I hope are going well for you and yours. Um, but there's always some things that get stuck in your craw around these times. So what's something that you want to return in your life? I want to return when someone has a holiday party and there are guests who contribute nothing and also don't help the vibe. And, you know, they're not a good conversation. They don't bring good energy and they didn't bring anything to eat. They didn't bring a bottle of wine or any alcohol. Those people who are the ones who didn't contribute to the class project, but still got an A, I want to return their invitation. The Tristan Thompson of holiday parties, if you will. <laughs> Precisely. Good stuff. All right, JQ, your turn. What do you got? Definite old man take. Let's try to normalize actually calling people that we want to be in touch with on the holidays. Texting is cool. Social media, what's up? It's great. I appreciate it. I'm not saying those are bad. But let's call each other a little bit more. I am in total agreement with that as a big proponent of the call, which is sometimes to the annoyance of my friends and family. But nonetheless, I'm all about the call. Um, and for me, my thing that I want to return uh, that I have so many receipts for, but no store will accept it is 
Once again, the coronavirus pandemic is spiking up and it is making life miserable for everybody involved. I got COVID once this year. My girlfriend got COVID once this year. A lot of my friends have gotten COVID. And while the cases are in many respects getting milder, um, there are still many people out there for whom even a mild case of COVID is in fact really, really bad. Um, and I am just annoyed that it keeps spreading and spreading and spreading every winter and that this appears to be our new normal. So people, um, one thing that you might wanna consider in this Christmas spirit is when you're going outside, particularly if you are like me, going into crowded subway cars with a bunch of people in Brooklyn, maybe consider that mask. I know it's annoying. I know it's uncomfortable. My beard gets sweaty and gross. I hate it just as much as everybody else, but um, I'm also tired of everybody getting sick. So would love to return COVID to the store would love to not have to have that one floating around again. I really like that as a person with an autoimmune disorder who has a mother who ended up, even though she was vaccinated, getting COVID and really having it screw her up. I still wear masks everywhere I go, anywhere where there is enclosed spaces because of it. And listen, I know for most of us, it's not a big deal, but there's people all around you with situations like me and my family, uh, who, as Alex said, it could be potentially devastating. So I understand it's a big drag, but uh, so is carrying around an oxygen bottle for the rest of your life. So uh, please. And let's be clear just on this, and then we'll leave this behind. But um, I am also not perfect on this. I need to be better about this myself. But um, as a live musician who likes to attend concerts and play at them, it's always better when, you know, half of the audience isn't infected with something at the show. So please consider the mask. Anyway, um, Bobby, I hope that your holiday has been lovely. I hope that you have had a wonderful day and a nice evening watching our Celtics trounce the hated Lakers yet again. Anything else uh, that we can expect from you in terms of writing, pods, anything else? Where should we find you? Uh, much appreciated. The holiday's been fantastic, and I hope that applies to the two of you as well. And when it comes to finding my work, we've got wall-to-wall -wall Celtics Lakers and coverage of this West Coast trip, including themes that we take away from them going three and one. So you can find that si.com slash NBA slash Celtics inside the Celtics. You can find me on Twitter. I've said it on this program because it's the truth. I have an addiction to it, though I refuse to call it X. That seems like a weird move. So at Bobby Kravitsky, you can see how it's spelled. K-R-I-V as in Victor, I-T-S-K-Y is the last name for those listening to the audio version of this. And then me, Jack Simone, and Sam LaFrance, two other good friends of this show, we recently started our own Celtics podcast because that is the thing to do. It's called Talk and Seas, and that drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, wherever you get your podcasts from, plus YouTube. Thank you, Bobby. And if you liked what you heard on this episode, then you can find the Celtics Lab podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and all sorts of other platforms. Please like, subscribe, and leave us a review. This episode of the Celtics Lab podcast is brought to you by FanDuel, the exclusive wagering partner of the CLNS Media Network. Justin, Bobby, pleasure to have both of you on. Hope you had a lovely holidays and wishing you both good tidings in this coming new year as well as another banner for our boys in green. Have a happy holidays, everyone. Felices fiestas, compadres.